The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm John Emmons, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 6th, 2023. The team at Lawfare said a bittersweet goodbye to David Priest last week, as he moves on to a new position. For this week's episode, I selected an episode from July 2020, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Priest to talk about something he did before joining Lawfare, serving as an intelligence briefer. Priest draws on his experience to discuss the history of the President's Daily Brief, how different presidents have chosen to receive intelligence, and concerns at the time of the episode's recording about how then-President Donald Trump was receiving intelligence presented to him. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, 2020. David Priest is the Chief Operating Officer of the Lawfare Institute, He is also, unbeknownst to many Lawfare podcast listeners, a former CIA briefer for the Attorney General and the FBI director, and perhaps more important than that for present purposes, he is the author of a book entitled The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents. The President's Daily Brief has been in the news of late because of the Russia bounties story and the question of whether President Trump is actually internalizing the intelligence information he has given in his daily briefing. I sat down in the Virtual Jungle studio with David to talk about the history of the President's Daily Brief, how different presidents have gotten intelligence information, and whether President Trump's behavior in this regard is exceptional or not. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, David Priest on the History of the President's Daily Brief. So David, before we get into the current flap about the President's briefing with respect to the Russian bounties question. Let's talk about the history of the presidential daily brief. When was it that the first president started getting an inte- a daily intelligence briefing? And how did this weird product, the nature of which is almost like a daily newspaper for a very small constituency, how did it come to be? Yeah, most presidents for most of U.S. history did not have anything close to what we would now consider intelligence analysis to help them make national security decisions. 
In fact, it was really a product of World War II and more so the Cold War that led to a process by which intelligence experts not only got the raw intelligence from all sources, but then assessed it and provided to the commander in chief their best take on what was actually going on in various parts of the world. So you could point to Harry Truman, who was the president when the National Security Act was passed and the modern intelligence community was formed. He did receive a daily publication. It wasn't really tailored to him personally. Um, That really started with John F. Kennedy in 1961, when they realized that he was not processing information the same way that General Eisenhower, his predecessor, had. So they developed for him a unique product, the President's Intelligence Checklist, which was written in a journalistic style to appeal to John Kennedy, a former journalist himself. It got rid of a lot of the classification and government gobbledygook that filled these big, heavy reports and distilled it down to just what that president needed to know in a format appealing to him. And he would carry it around with him during the day, pull it out to read it when he had a quick minute. And it seemed to work. So therefore, presidents since have had a similar pattern. They renamed it in 1964, the President's Daily Brief, the name that has stuck ever since. But that is really the birth of modern intelligence in 1961. And when people say the President's Daily Brief, they're often talking about two different things. One is this written news product. And the other is the system of briefings that the president gets. To what extent are these two distinct products and to what extent are they really one and the same? Yeah, it's been very different between the presidents. Uh, For most of the time since 1961, presidents have not taken in-person oral briefings from intelligence community officers as part of their intelligence gathering process. It just hasn't worked. Normally, they have received the written product, first the president's intelligence checklist, but most of the time the president's daily brief, and they have read it, usually in the mornings. Uh, Some presidents spread it out, but usually in the mornings they would read the book and then talk to their national security advisor or others during the day about it. Some presidents had their national security advisors themselves essentially orally brief the book while they read it. Jimmy Carter was a good case of that. Ronald Reagan did largely the same. He would read the book and talk to his national security advisor about it. But only a few presidents have had sustained regular in-person oral briefings of the president's daily brief. When they do so, it can go several ways. One can be that the briefer essentially reads the book to the president. That is, making sure that the president has internalized the message by talking them through it. More often, it's digging a little bit deeper than the text itself, or just being there to answer questions, or perhaps adding things on to say, Mr. President, we printed this at six o'clock this morning so we could get it to you to start the day. But in the last two hours before this actual briefing happened, we've gotten this intelligence in that actually corroborates something that was in the printed product. The presidents have had different mixes of the written briefing and the oral briefing, and there's no right way of doing it. It really depends on the learning style of the president. The PDB is often described as like a magazine or a newspaper with a highly specialized readership. 
But my impression of it is that it is sometimes quite long and detailed. How much intelligence is the president integrating and assimilating on a daily basis? Not this president, because we'll get to that in a minute. Right. But in theory, you know, how long is this thing and, and, and how much information does it really contain? Is it kind of like one major story a day? Is it, you know, a thousand pages? Like what, what, hmm. what's, the, what's the reading list level uh, that the president has to be willing to engage in order to get the benefit of the PDB? Again, there's variety here across its history, but it's it's in the name of the product itself. It's the president's, that is, it's geared towards the president. It is produced every working day. It's daily, but it is brief. It is not book length or else most presidents, usually the busiest person on the face of the earth is the president of the United States with the most demands on their time. It would be very hard to get through a 100-page book every day. There are examples in history, some of the declassified PDBs from the 1960s. You can find copies of the PDB that only had one, two, or three pages, very quick hit stories on just a couple of topics. And you can find examples that went into dozens of pages, although those are are quite rare. Usually it's somewhere between the two. Probably a good safe bet for the historical average is somewhere between eight and 12 pages perhaps even less than that as a as an overall average but what this contains are is several stories the president's daily brief usually will have a few different stories on things that the intelligence community judges the president needs to see that day and that can be based on a few things one the president's schedule if the president is going to meet next week with a foreign leader it stands to reason that the president's daily brief would have in preparation for that articles related to that leader in that country that might not make it above the threshold other times. Similarly, if the president himself has asked a question, or if the national security advisor on behalf of the president has said to the intelligence community, I think the president should hear about X, X will probably appear in the president's daily brief the next day or very soon thereafter. So on any number of topics any day, it could be those spurs, or it could be a spur of the analysts themselves on a particular country or topic, seeing an amount of raw intelligence coming in that leads them to believe that something important is happening that affects the president's decision-making, in which case they will write something up and try to add it to that mix. On any given day, the president might have two, three, four, five, maybe 10 different items in the PDB that this system thinks warrant his attention on that very day. You've described a lot of potential diversity here, but the essential quality of the PDB is a written document in which a select number of major matters that relate to presidential potential decision-making are Mm -hmm. digested in kind of rigorous factual form and somebody is made available to answer questions about it. Is that the sort of classic structure? Yeah. I mean, the ideal in many ways, at least from the perception of intelligence community leaders, has been the delivery of the president's daily brief to the White House, along with a senior analytic briefer who goes in 
and the president gives undivided attention to the briefing, perhaps reads the book in advance, or maybe reads it in the presence of the briefer, and then has a discussion with the briefer, digging down, getting more information, but also in the act of doing so, giving the briefer information about what the president needs and how they need it so that they can go back to the system and the individual analysts and editors within the system who can better prepare the book in future days based on that understanding of the customer's needs. So that hasn't always worked. A lot of presidents have simply read the book and you don't get that face-to-face interaction to understand how the president truly thinks. A good case here may be Bill Clinton, who took irregular briefings with an intelligence community officer. In fact, one of his daily PDB briefers who didn't quite make it in every day was John Brennan, who learned a lot about interacting with presidents at that senior level through that job back then. But Clinton read the book, and he occasionally would pass questions back in writing or through the National Security Advisor, but it didn't give the analysts working on the PDB a sense every single day of exactly what he was thinking so that they could give him the best insights. The opposite end of that is probably George W. Bush, who took in-person briefings from a senior intelligence briefer every working day of his presidency, whether he was in Washington or traveling domestically or overseas. And analysts had tremendous insight into the granularity that the president wanted in the articles he would read, the kinds of evidence that he needed to be convinced of, and the kinds of things that he understood over time and did not need to be repeated, such that at the end of eight years, the PDB was a very well-refined document and briefing process that immensely helped the president because the intel community knew what helped him the most, whether he believed the intelligence or not, whether his, his policies reflected what the analysts thought were the logical conclusions, those are irrelevant. It's whether they're giving the president what he needs in order to make those national security decisions. So you worked on the PDB briefing team uh, while you were at CIA, and I want to talk about that. But before we do, I want to talk about the PDBs that have become public. This Mm -hmm. is one of the most closely held regular intelligence products that the intelligence community produces. And yet a whole lot of them have become public through declassification processes over time. So leaving aside what you know about it from having participated in it, what is available to the public in the way of PDBs? Yeah, most presidents' daily briefs through history are still classified, and the only people who can see them are the CIA historians who have clearances, who can go into the vaults, pull them out, and I mean that, I mean the physical old copies are there, can pull them out and look at them in order to answer classified questions from a CIA director or from the White House about something in the past intelligence world. The three ways that we do have a window into the PDBs are through selective declassifications that were made in the past, uh, through systematic declassification efforts, and then through extraordinary events, and quickly the three of those. The exceptional declassifications early on, there were a few cases when I was researching and writing about the PDB. There were a few PDBs that actually existed 
in the presidential libraries. And these were some uh, space-related PDBs from the late Johnson administration. Uh, The stories differed on this. Some people said that decisions had been made that these few PDB articles could be released, and it was formal policy to do so from the White House. Others said that some of those were inadvertently released, and they tried to pull it back, but once it's been out there and photocopied by researchers, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle. So when I went to write the book, I did find some PDBs from the 1960s that gave a window into what the book was like back then. The second category is the systematic declassifications. And this started just at the time that book was coming out when the president decided, this is President Obama, decided that nothing should remain secret forever. And he instituted a de facto 40-year declassification rule for PDBs. Thus, the Kennedy and Johnson documents were declassified and a conference was held at the University of Texas at the LBJ Library to highlight this declassification effort and the revelation of hundreds upon hundreds of daily intelligence documents for both Kennedy and Johnson. And then a few years later, the same thing was done at the Nixon Library in order to reveal the Nixon and Ford PDBs. Now that took us up to January of 1977. And you might know that you know those 40 years ended a few years ago. We're due for the Carter PDBs to be declassified and, and released. It's unclear whether this president will affirmatively say, yes, we are going to continue that process, or whether he will say, I'm not going to do that anymore because that's what Obama did. We just don't know yet. But that's the main way that we have a window into the PDBs. You can go online to the CIA website and through the presidential libraries and see what kind of intelligence reporting the presidents were seeing daily through the PDB. The third and final way is through extraordinary events. And the primary example of this is through the 9-11 commission. After the 9-11 attacks, the commission really wanted to see what the PDB said about Al-Qaeda, both in the Clinton administration and in the few months of the Bush administration uh, before 9-11 happened. And they went back and eventually got access to all of them because of pressure from the families of the victims who put public pressure on the administration to reverse its choice that the PDBs were the most privileged communication between a president and and his advisors and should not be seen by anyone. Uh, They reversed that. And the commission was able to look at them with a lot of safeguards put in and actually published the text of two PDB articles, one from the Clinton years and one from the Bush years in the 9-11 commission report itself. Uh, That's the window into the PDB that we've had so far. So as I mentioned, you've had a different window into the PDB, which is that you worked on the briefing team associated with it. Uh, So tell us about that work. What did you do? And, And how does that team work functionally? It's a it's a weird product. It's it's sure. basically a a highly bespoke magazine for a very particular client delivered a combination of in written form and orally every day. Uh how does it work? Well, I'll start bigger and then narrow down to the role of the the briefing team that I was on. So at one level, everyone in the US intelligence community helps with the PDB every day. 
And it may not be that the case officer on the streets of a Middle Eastern capital is, is helping the PDB every day, every week, or even every month, but some intelligence report that they collect probably feeds into the analytic process for something that eventually is considered for the PDB. Sometimes it's more direct than that. And there can be a hot report coming in from a valued asset that comes in and it is immediately written up with some context and implications around it and appears within the PDB within hours. But essentially, everyone in the intelligence community can have some role in either collecting intelligence for or analyzing intelligence for what ends up in the PDB. All of the submissions for what goes in the PDB every day then get funneled through an editorial team. And these are experts in the intelligence community whose role is not to analyze the intelligence, but to review these analytic products that are nominated for the president and see whether the logic and argumentation holds together, to see whether there are some obvious questions that the president or other recipients of the book are likely to ask, and then they ask the analysts to add that to the piece, and then ultimately to rack and stack these items and say, what do we need to get to the president tomorrow morning? My job as a briefer came even after that, which is I would show up in the middle of the night and see a draft of the PDB that was going to be printed and made available to us to take downtown in the wee hours of the morning. And we'd look at those draft pieces and figure out which ones we felt up to speed on from previous briefings or our own expertise, and which ones we had to pull up some of the reporting that kind of provided the evidence for the analyst's judgments. And we would do some background reading, and we would sometimes call the analysts who wrote the piece to talk us through parts of it on a classified line, so that if our customer asked us questions, we would know what to say, or we would know that we didn't know the answer. And we could tell the person we were briefing, we don't know that, sir. The intelligence just isn't good enough, but here's what we're doing to try to collect more. Most often, for most briefing customers, they want their PDB first thing in the morning. They want it to start their day. And that's usually derived from the president himself, who most often has read the PDB first thing in the morning. And so the briefers tend to get in early, prep, and give their briefings in the morning because each president designates others to receive the PDB, um, usually including the National Security Advisor, the Secretaries of State and Defense, in recent decades, usually also the Treasury Secretary, the Homeland Security Secretary, the Attorney General, the FBI Director, and sometimes deputies and other senior officials within the national security departments. There's a whole bunch of briefers who go with the PDB to either deliver it and watch the customer read it, or more often to talk to the customer about what's in it and try to answer questions as they come up. One of the biggest job I had as a briefer, one of the biggest jobs I had was to bring questions back because I wasn't going to be able to answer every question. And if I couldn't, I wanted to bring it back so that the smart people who worked that topic could actually answer the question in a PDB article the next day, or sometimes with a phone call to the senior government official that very day if they needed the answer for a quick decision. So it really is a almost a liaison job in a sense of being a connective point between the intelligence community and the senior customer so that we could get those senior customers, including the president, what they needed when they needed it. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, 
showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. All right, all of which brings us to President Trump, who there has been a lot of reporting about the way he engages the PDB process. And just to summarize it, you know, some stories have said he really doesn't like reading things. And so they've tried to focus on providing more uh, visual information. Uh, Some stories have suggested because he doesn't read the brief every day, he really engages it mostly through a through the briefings, which he does on a couple times a week basis, not an everyday basis. There have even been some stories that suggest that, you know, people who have been involved in the briefing process have tried to uh, use his name a lot because he likes, he's more likely to read something if it's about him. So what do we actually know about the way Donald Trump engages the PDB process and to what extent should we rely on these news stories as probable representations of how he's uh, internalizing intelligence information? Yeah, you've nailed it. We, We don't know with universal certainty what the president does or doesn't do with his his PDB. But we have a better sense of of th- what this president does than we have had with most presidents during their term for, for two reasons. One is the president himself and the comments of those, uh, public comments of those who have firsthand information. The president himself said quite publicly back in 2016 that he doesn't like to read long documents and he prefers bullet points, if anything, at all. Well, the intelligence community for decades has been very good about reading the most obscure tea leaves to try to figure out what the president might want in terms of the style and format of the PDB in order to get its messages more clearly. Here you have a president-elect who has said, I want bullet points. It would be foolish to assume that the PDB has not been pared down to very short analytic statements, perhaps in bullet point form, and it would be foolish to think that the intelligence community is insisting on giving him a 20 or 30 page book full of page long articles when he has explicitly said he doesn't want that. We also have people like Mike Pompeo back when he was CIA director. He publicly said that the PDB is full of 
pictures, graphs, charts. He actually used the phrase killer graphics, which got some chuckles at the time because people didn't know how serious he was being or whether that was just a uh, symbolic use of the word killer. But either way, you here you have people who actually were, were getting the PDB who were talking about the fact of, of what it is and what it isn't. Now, the reporting that has come out from other sources, many of whom it's attributed to people who have access to these briefings and attend them or prepare them, many of those sources are saying things that are consistent with this, saying that the PDB is a shorter document, um, but more importantly, saying the president just doesn't read it, that the briefings which reporting within the last day or two suggests that at least recently he only gets an average of one and a half oral briefings a week from a PDB briefer instead of uh, five or six in the course of a week, that he relies on those oral briefings and doesn't read it the other days. We can't be sure that that's the truth, but the White House has never really pushed back on it. The press secretary has said, no, the president is a great reader. He actually can read. Okay, uh, that's fine but we see little evidence that he that he is reading it every single day if so then he would not have been surprised if in fact something that has been reported to have been in the printed book was in the book because it's it, it would have been put there for him to see i do think we have to be careful about making declarative firm judgments about exactly how something as sensitive and tightly controlled as the pdb system operates when, when we don't have it for sure. There's no reason that it has to be a secret. In past administrations, sometimes the administration would authorize officials to talk on the record about how they received the PDB, such that, at least in the Obama administration, we had a great sense of how people like the Homeland Security Secretary and the Attorney General got their PDBs, and when in the morning they got the briefing, and then what they did with it, this White House has not been the same in terms of how it communicates information about the president's schedule. So if we take the news stories about the Russia bounty matter as true, they basically amount to the matter was in the PDB, but it was not orally briefed to the president. Is that a fair summary? That is the... The claim from the White House that I have seen is that the president was not briefed on it. The claim from multiple sources to mul multiple news outlets has been that the story was in the printed PDB, and one of the sources actually gave a date in late February when the story was in the president's daily brief. Before you go on, I just want to isolate a, yeah. a sort of almost a terminological thing. Mm -hmm. If something is in the president's daily brief, but the president doesn't read it, has he been briefed? It depends. Briefing has two words in this context. I mean, the president's daily brief is a briefing. It is a written briefing, um, but it is only one form of a verbal or word-based briefing. The other, of course, is an oral briefing where you can talk through the topics. So it can be true both that the story was presented in a briefing to Donald Trump, but he was not briefed on it because perhaps it was in the written PDB, which he did not read, and it was not highlighted in one of the rare oral briefings. Therefore, he did not get the message because no one else made sure that he got it. That is technically possible. And again, based on the limited information we have so far, appears to be the most likely option right now. 
But I have to say, it's a, it seems to me a very generous description of it to him. He receives a daily set of briefing papers. The information that's in it, that's in that daily set of briefing papers is the information the intelligence community thinks it's important for presidential decision-making for the president to be made aware of. The president, being the president, is entitled to be exactly as engaged with that material as he wants to be. But it doesn't seem to me quite fair to say, if I didn't read my briefing papers, then I wasn't briefed. Yeah, it's it's a unique situation because in all presidencies in the past, you had, in effect, the primary system for making the president aware of national security information, including intelligence. Um, that That's the national security advisor's role. And even in cases where we weren't sure if the president was directly reading the PDB every day, which is the case of Richard Nixon, and even in the case where presidents weren't getting in-person direct communication with intelligence officers, which is many uh, presidents in the Cold War period, you knew that the national security advisor was reading the PDB, usually taking a direct briefing on it, and then talking to the president about it. That's the missing link here. You could have a case where the president doesn't read the PDB, and that's fine if he is getting oral briefings on it from intelligence community officers, perhaps, but at least from the national security advisor every day who says, Mr. President, I know you probably didn't read the PDB this morning, but here's one thing we really have to talk about. Or maybe here's 10 things we really need to talk about. The problem is we don't think that happened here. And we don't think that because Robert O'Brien has publicly said, well, the president's briefer chose not to highlight this in an oral briefing. These aren't the exact words he said, but the meaning of what he said. Therefore, because the president's intelligence community briefer didn't highlight it because she didn't think it was credible enough, and I agree with that, therefore, it really wasn't important. Well, that's not quite fair because if something is put into the PDB, it is judged credible enough to be in front of the president. And there's no reason that a briefer would not highlight it because individually that officer thought it was not credible if it was already judged to be important enough to be in the written product. It also does not absolve the National Security Advisor of the duty of taking something that important if the briefer did not highlight it for whatever reason and getting it to the president. In this case, who is responsible for making sure that the president gets national security information? Well, Robert O'Brien should have been arguing for the briefer to see him more often if, in fact, he thought it was her job to get him intel information, but he was unable to get the president to take more frequent intelligence briefings, or he should have brought it up himself. Uh, there's no other way really to square this other than a failure of the National Security Advisor to serve the president. Speaking of people who get the president's daily brief, mm -hmm. at what point does Joe Biden start to get intelligence briefings again? And to the extent that he does, what sort of intelligence briefings does he get? Does he get to see the, he presumably doesn't get the PDB, but what does he get? And at what point does he start seeing what amounts to a PDB? Typically what has happened, and I say typically because this is in the area of custom and norm, not uh, legislation, but typically what has happened is that presidents have offered to the major party candidates of both major parties 
intelligence briefings after their nominations, such that sometime in the late summer, the nominees of the Republican and Democratic parties have received high-level intelligence briefings. These are not the president's daily brief. These are overview briefings of the world situation at a classified level. It's no kidding classified information, but it is not the day-to-day secrets and sources of methods information that is provided in the PDB. Almost all presidential candidates have taken advantage of this since the 1950s. And originally, the idea was that we wanted to make sure that somebody who might be inheriting the most powerful office in the world would start to get a sense of the pace of intelligence, would start to understand the world situation. Over time, the purpose has changed slightly, which is presidents like Jimmy Carter told me that you know he was offered the briefing and he took it because he didn't want to inadvertently say something that would make his foreign policy more difficult to do because he blurted something out of ignorance during the campaign, nor did he want to complicate Gerald Ford's foreign policy because Gerald Ford was still the president and he didn't want to say something on the campaign trail that would actually hurt US national security without knowing that there was a big intelligence story behind it. Like I said, most presidential candidates have taken advantage of this opportunity and received briefings, but it was largely a quiet process until 2016 when word got out that there would be these briefings. And at the time, people were saying, wait a minute, on the one hand, we have Hillary Clinton, who has just been publicly chastised for being extremely careless with classified information. On the other hand, we have Donald Trump, who seems to blurt out everything he thinks as he thinks it. Is this the time to be giving classified information to both candidates? Well, they did. The The process went forward and there were some news stories that came out of it, but no major issues did. That's still not the PDB, Ben. The PDB doesn't become an issue until we have an actual president-elect. At that point, the custom is that the sitting president allows the president-elect to see his own PDB every day. And the first president who had the PDB was Lyndon Johnson. And so sure enough, starting in 1968, he allowed Richard Nixon as president-elect to see the PDBs if he wanted to. Normally, the intelligence community will set up a briefing operation with officers there to brief them on the PDB, to give them other intelligence information, but also to get a sense of the president, to get to know them a little bit before they come into office so that they can immediately adjust the PDB at inauguration to serve the the style and the learning preferences of the new president. So one of the things you often hear is that the president's daily brief is the means by which presidents get intelligence. And if it was, if not in the PDB, then we can presume the president doesn't know about it or that the IC didn't think it was important for the Mm. president to know. Mm -hmm. My impression is that that is largely a myth. And I'm curious for your sense of it. Is, Is the PDB the principal channel the only channel, or is it merely the first channel in the day? I'm guilty of this to some extent because here I am, the guy who researched and wrote the book all about the PDB and focused all this attention on it. But we do tend to to fetishize the president's daily brief. It is a method of getting sensitive intelligence information to the president. It is far from the only one. There are some cases when information is too sensitive to even be put in this most exclusive of documents. 
and details are left out of the PDB so that the CIA director or the director of national intelligence can brief the president one-on-one and let them decide who else in the government should see or hear it. Two examples in recent history that we know about. Um, There was a case for Jimmy Carter where the CIA director, uh, Stansfield Turner at the time, he told me that there was a source that was so sensitive that he did not want to put it in the PDB, but he thought the president needed to know the origin of information that he was getting. So he went into the White House and told Jimmy Carter, I'm going to tell you this. It's up to you whether you tell your national security advisor. That's on you, but I am only going to tell it to you. More recently, with the analysis about Russian interference in the 2016 election, reporting suggests that, in fact, the intelligence community decided to brief this to President Obama, but not put it in the president's daily brief, which Obama had started circulating to more officials than has been the historical norm. So by no means is sensitive information only communicated in the PDB. There are also other channels to the president. The White House has a situation room that 24-7 is manned by intelligence military personnel solely to get information to the president and the national security advisor as it comes in. And that can be several times a day, or it can be any time that a certain level of information comes in. Also, the president talks to people. He could get on the phone to an intelligence leader. The president can talk to the secretary of state or the chairman of the joint chiefs, or presumably the national security advisor. And during those meetings, the president could be made aware of all kinds of classified material. So yes, the president's daily brief is special because it's the focal point for all intelligence collection and analysis, and it is institutionalized for that purpose but it's far from the only way the president can get vital national security information. And just to be clear, the president's daily brief is focused on things that the president doesn't already know about, right? So it's it's kind of like the newspaper. You know, when you have a situation like the, for example, the bin Laden raid that's operational the president is going to be engaged in that information in something like real time including mm-hmm. sitting in the room and watching the you know watching the raid from uh, or monitoring the raid from the situation room that's not the kind of thing that goes in the pdb no. right that's that's so operational and real time that the president just just is exactly as engaged with it as he wants to be right you're, you're exactly right. It, it was funny, even historically, uh, when I was researching the, the first book and looking at what had been declassified in little bits over time, some of the product that was prepared for John F. Kennedy called the, the President's Intelligence Checklist, a lot of those around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis had been declassified. And it was shocking how little there was about Cuba in the President's essential daily product And it's because he was getting daily XCOM meetings and was getting all that information. And the people preparing the president's document from the intelligence community said, why should we tell the president what he already knows? Let's let's use this to keep him informed about other world hotspots that are popping up while he's focused so much on Cuba. Um, The same thing definitely holds for other reasons. If you know that the president is up to speed on a topic, you don't need to repeat it and hit him, regardless of who that president is hit him over the head with it. But there's a different dynamic from a, from a different angle that's related to this. 
it is the president's daily brief and it goes to the president and only to people that the president says should also get it. Historically, that's usually included the core national security principles, sometimes as few as just a couple of people, sometimes as many as 30 or 40. But those people primarily read the PDB because the president is reading it. And they don't want to go into a meeting in the White House and have the president raise something, and they have no idea what he's talking about. The intelligence community doesn't do a service to the FBI director or the secretary of state if they are setting those officials up to be embarrassed in front of the president. So my job when I was briefing the PDB was most often to brief the attorney general and the FBI director, because after September 11th, while I was briefing them every single day, I finished my PDB briefing with them while the president's briefer was briefing George W. Bush. And then the attorney general and the FBI director would go up Pennsylvania Avenue and meet immediately after with the president. And more days than not, items that they had both just been briefed on in the PDB would be one of the topics of conversation. What are we going to do about this development? This thing we've just learned about Al-Qaeda, what can we do and what should we do? Part of my job was to make sure they understood everything that was in the PDB the way that the president would understand it, and to anticipate what questions the president might ask them that intelligence could shed light on. Now, that's not the habit of every White House, but at some level, the purpose of PDB briefings is to make the government work more effectively, to make sure that people who are going to be held to account by the president have the intelligence information they need in order to answer his questions more quickly and get to a solution of a national security problem more efficiently. David Priest, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and it's also today produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo, Zachary Frank from which firm has recorded today's episode. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only Sophia Yan, who will be among tomorrow's guests on the Lawfare Podcast. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. So tweet it, share it on Facebook, pin it on Pinterest and upvote it on Reddit And of course, visit thelawfarestore.com for your dose of lawfare whiskey tumblers, lawfare socks, lawfare corkscrews, and all the other merch. And when you're done with that, go rate us and review us wherever you found us. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.